All right, well, welcome to T2. Learning um, about uh, God, specifically learning about God as he's revealed himself in the Bible. Uh, we adorn the doctrine of God that is by our lives. We make him beautiful by the way we live our lives and, and uh, worship him with our minds as well as our hearts. So that's sort of the idea. So um, it's uh, biblically-based, discussion-driven. So this isn't just going to be me talking. We've got a smaller crowd today, so everybody's going to have to pitch in. Um, and it's application-oriented, which means um, uh, we're not going to just stay up in the, the level of contemplating the doctrine of God. We're actually going to apply it uh, to our lives, and hopefully in some meaningful ways. So um, the uh, last two sessions, including today and then next week, are all about uh, biblical interpretation. So uh, how, how should we best read, understand, and apply the Bible to our lives. Um, so, uh, by way of introduction, to kind of show what it is that we're trying to get away from, uh, and we do a good job of this in, in this church specifically, but uh, what are some verses that you think of when you hear the term coffee mug verses? And like, what does that mean? Jeremiah verse, I know the plans for you, plans that, for you. Yep, absolutely. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, never to fail you. That's a good verse that might wind up on a coffee mug. How is that misinterpreted in our, or maybe taking out of taken out of context in our culture today? Yes. What's that now? It was a promise made somebody else. That's right. That's not about America, and it's not about uh, maybe necessarily our individual lives. It was spoken to the nation of Israel in a time of captivity. So, yeah, we don't want to make the mistake of thinking that we're all going to be prosperous because Jeremiah told Israel that there were prosperous designs in their future. What's another one? What's one more? God's love. God is love? Yeah. Okay. So how might we misinterpret that? Uh, by misunderstanding what love is, right? So, you know, that's been used by universalists. It's been used by all kinds of people who would just interpret love as kind of the emotionalism. Right. Everybody's fine. Repentance is part of the picture. Right. How about yeah. Romans 8.28? Romans 8.28? things work together for good. Okay. And a lot of people stop right there. And how does the verse end? Where should we end that verse? Well, you know, to those that believe in the Lord. Yeah, right. For those that know God and are called according to his purpose. So, so yeah, so it's uh, that promise only applies to a specific group of people. So chopping the verse off right in the middle does it an injustice. Good. So we sort of get the idea of why this is important. Um, so in week one, we were it was sort of an overview, getting to know the Bible, um, and one of the things that was talked about was the overarching theme of the Bible, that the Bible is one book. It's composed of many books, but uh, it is a whole. It's a, a contiguous whole. So what can somebody summarize the one overarching theme, the grand narrative, if you will, of, of the Bible? Restoration. Restoration. So if you were to sum it up in one word, that might be one way you could do it. Right? To explain that a little more, how would you describe that in like a sentence or two? Um, well, God was already there. Um, people messed up what God created, and the Lord is rebuilding things as he intended, as he planned it for his sake of his own glory. Awesome. 
Awesome. And, and who is the uh, the central character or the central theme of the Bible? God. God is. God. Right? So the Bible is not about us. It's about God. And the perfect image, the perfect representation of God is Jesus Christ. So, so yeah, I would, I would just say, you know, uh, the Bible is about God. God created the world perfect. Humans messed it up with sin. And he is redeeming it through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Um, so through Jesus, we can be reconciled with God to know and enjoy him forever. So that would be like the, the overarching theme of the Bible. So any book that we go into the Bible to specifically interpret, we, that, that's a place that we can start is just understanding that overarching, overarching narrative. So um, if that's the grand story of the Bible, why do we then study the Bible? Why do we take the time to learn how to do this well? right yes so we study the bible to learn about god to learn about jesus and we want to do it right so we learn the right things yeah absolutely uh and i think it's important to remember that reading the bible is not just an academic or an intellectual exercise that this these are the very words of god and so um reading the bible is a spiritual exercise that we we read the bible not to do all those things we just described we read it to learn more about god about christ and about uh, what he's doing in the world and in and through us. And that uh, ultimately is a spiritually formative experience and it's a worshipful experience. So to, to look, desire to learn more about God is an act of worship. So then in week two, uh, Joey kind of started helping us dig into some of the nuts and bolts of how this is done well. So it was all about observation. So when we read the text, we want to make sure that we are um, uh, not just glossing over things, but we are studying it well. So what are a couple of the, uh, a couple of the things that uh, Joey talked about, some of the elements of good observation? Repetitive words. Repetitive words? That, that, that's exactly right. Yeah, so if we notice repetition, that's a sign that the author is trying to emphasize something for us. That was super common in the ancient world. That was a, a good way. They didn't have... You know, Microsoft Word where they can bold and underline things. So repetition is is good. Yeah. What's another one? What's another tool we look for? Keywords. Yeah, so keywords are linking words. Sometimes there's a word that may appear uh, very important. So if you see the word propitiation in the text, that's a word, in a sense, it's designed to kind of make you stop and think about it and contemplate it. We don't want to just gloss over words that are clearly have some theological weight to them. And then when we see things like therefore, right, that's the easiest one because uh, Nathan says this all the time from the pulpit. When you see the word therefore, what do you ask? What's it there for? What's it there for, right? So therefore is a linking word, so it's connecting two ideas in the text. <laughs> So yeah, absolutely. Seeing keywords, seeing linking words, therefore, but, and, so that, things like that. And then uh, everybody's favorite, grammar. Understanding the grammar. If you've ever learned another language, you know how important grammar is. I only know one language, English. And uh, so when I, you know, in seminary, you have to study Hebrew and Greek and that kind of stuff. And it's really hard. And if you don't get the grammar, you can forget about it. You know, you're never you're never gonna never gonna get anything. So um, having a basic grasp of the grammar and some grammatical constructions uh, is good. So what we're gonna do 
Those who were here early, I asked you to turn to Psalm 121. So if you're not there, you can take a second and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 121. What we want to do is just spend a few minutes um, observing the text, applying some of these things, and then uh, in a few minutes I will uh, kind of call us back together. If you just want to look for repeated words, keywords, linking words, uh, things in the grammar that may help us understand what's going on here, just take a few minutes to do that. All right, so Psalm 121, what are some of the things that we observe in the text? The Lord is keeper. Okay, good. Yeah, there's repetition. It starts with a question and the rest of the verse answer. That, great. So there's grammar. We start with a question and the rest of the passage is the answer. That's awesome. What else do we see there? It's helpful to know just the name Lord. Mm-hmm. So it's the, it's, it is the personal covenant name of God. It's not God, uh, Yahweh, but it's the personal covenant name. So yep. you should take note when we read that. Yep. So whenever we see Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, that's the personal covenant name of God. Good. Yep. Uh, the first two verses, there, it's I and my, and then the remaining verses go to he. Um, so there, and, I and to you. Um, so it's, it's explaining to someone else in a it's presumed experience, I believe. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's a, a, maybe there's like a speaker or some sort of a dialogue that's going on. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. And going along with what he said then um, in verse 4, uh, he includes Israel as a nation. Okay. Yeah. So there's a corporate aspect there. Awesome. Good. Good. <laughs> Anything else? Just the one other thing, and this kind of goes with both grammar and repetition, is almost every is kind of kind of like the it's that question and answer, but it takes an idea and unpacks it or reinforces it. So you will he uh, the Lord who keeps you will not slumber; he will neither slumber nor sleep. He is your shade; the sun shall not strike you by day. He will keep you from all evil; he will keep your life. And it, mm-hmm. and it just it's every pair is just sort of reinforcing and expanding the same idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's some sort of poetic emphasis that's occurring there. Yeah. Good, awesome. So this is all this is all the tools of observation. This is what Joey uh, uh, talked about last week. So before we jump to, okay, what does this passage mean, and how do I apply it to my life today? It's it's important not to skip this over um, because our interpretation, what we're going to talk about today, is. Uh, always going to be informed by our observation. Observation kind of is a guardrail to keep us from uh, reading our own thoughts into the text rather than take the time to try to see what the text is actually saying and pull the meaning of the text out. Does that make sense? So we'll talk more about that, about interpretation. Before we dig in, though, uh, we should pray and just ask God to bless our time uh, together. So will somebody do that? Will somebody pray for us? 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. There we go. Would this be, for we did not follow... Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, a voice came to him from the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son. I take delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic words strongly confirmed. We will do well to pay attention to it 
as a lamp shining in a dismal place until the day dawns and the morning star rises. First of all, you should know this. No prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that makes sense. So what does this passage tell us about interpreting scripture? Right, verse 20. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Right, very good. Yeah, I think it's amazing to think about Peter is writing. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. And he says what we have in the Word is more sure than that event. Right. That event, or the Word is interpreting why or what that significance of that event is. Absolutely. So no, uh, so the the word is uh, more sure, more firm, like Joey is saying, than uh, our interpretation of an experience or an event. Uh, and the word itself, as Denai was saying, has one intended meaning. We could say, or uh, the that the best way to say this, and um, this this is what it says here in the notes that Joey put together, and I couldn't agree with this more. That the text cannot mean what it has never meant. So we can't look at a, uh, a text of Scripture, a verse of Scripture, and ascribe some meaning to it that would be unique to our context, that would be unique to our situation in, in time and in place. So the text cannot mean what it has never meant. So uh, there is uh, one meaning for the text. There may be multiple applications but the divine author, the Holy Spirit, who inspired the Bible, has one intended meaning uh, for, for the text of Scripture. Turn to, uh, turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. Somebody read Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 35, down through the end of the chapter. As evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's cross to the other side of the lake. So they took Jesus in the boat and started out leaving the crowds behind, although other boats followed. But soon a fierce storm came up. High waves were breaking into the boat, and it began to fill with water. Jesus was sleeping at the back of the boat with his head on a cushion. The disciples woke up, shouting, Teacher, don't you care that we're going to drown? When Jesus woke up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Silence, be still. Suddenly the wind stopped, and there was a great calm. Then he asked them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The disciples were absolutely terrified. Who is this man? They asked each other. Even the wind and waves obey him. All right, awesome. Thank you, Sam. So uh, what is a commonly misinterpreted main idea of this text? What might you hear from maybe not the greatest preacher or interpreter of the Bible about what this text means. That's it. Jesus will calm the storms of your life. Yeah. I've, I've heard, I don't know how many sermons, that the main idea of the sermon, driven from the main idea of the text, which is what we're supposed to do, is Jesus will calm the storms in your life. Now, is that wrong? Maybe not necessarily. Okay. 
But is that the main idea of the text? Jesus can calm the storms in your life, and oftentimes he does, but that's not the main idea of the text. What is the main idea of the text? Christ is Lord of the waves. That Christ is Lord of the wind and the waves. That Jesus has all authority. That's exactly right. Authority and power. Yeah. And, I mean, the big difference between those two, right? Like, there's a lot of difference, but the big difference, I think, is who the subject of the sentence is. Right? There you go. One is Christ is Lord. The other is Jesus will do X for me. Like, absolutely right. It's about me versus Christ. So Absol- good absolutely. First instinct to think something's wrong with this interpretation. Yeah. So, uh, did everybody notice what you just said at the very end of that? If your first instinct and interpretation is this verse is about me, then maybe you're off base because we always have to remember that the Bible is not about us, it's about God first and foremost. Now, God is gracious enough that his word will apply to us, but that's because of his grace. Ultimately, it's not about um, we're going to talk about like interpretation and actual method for interpretation. Remember, Joey has said this, and I just want to reiterate this: that there um, there is no formula for studying the Bible. That God, uh, the Bible is ultimately a spiritual book, and reading it is a spiritual exercise. So there's not just some formula where we're going to very efficiently put in X and get out Y. Okay, but that doesn't mean having a methodology is not helpful. I think it is helpful to have a methodology, just like a surgeon or an airline pilot or um, a world-class cook has a method to what it is that they do. We should also have a method uh, in, in what we do in reading and interpreting the Bible. Does that make sense? So some basic interpretive principles. First and foremost, uh, uh, we can never underestimate the power of prayer. Uh, again, the Bible is a spiritual book. Reading it is a spiritual exercise. In many ways, it's an act of worship. And so to... Uh, prayer to align our hearts with the truth of this message, uh, to ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to help us understand the message in the Bible. Um, That's very, very important. So in preaching, teaching, and in your own personal reading or reading the Bible with with somebody else, prayer should be an integral part of that. Any questions about that? I think we all like agree and assent to that, but we don't want to move on and, and just skip over. So after we pray, um, there's a number of things that we can do, and we've kind of hinted at some of these things already, so uh, let's just be very um, specific about them. Number one, I think it's very important to determine the genre of the book that we're reading. So we want to determine the genre of the book that we're reading. And I've got to speed up a little bit here. I'm a little behind. So what are some of the genres in the Bible? Poetry. Poetry. Okay, good. That's one. History. Good. Narrative, good. Or we might even say historical narrative. Uh-huh. See what I did there? All right, what else? Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature. Okay, probably the hardest one to interpret, but there's a good bit of that in the Bible. Yep. Poetry, historical narrative, apocalyptic. Prophetic. Wisdom literature, poetry. Yep. Prophecy. Prophecy. Uh, what is most of the New Testament? Huh? Letters, good. Letters, yeah. Epistles, great, great. So um, when we are reading a letter, we're going to read that differently than when we're reading a poem. Just like we would today, right? If you get um, a card from Aunt Sue, you're going to read that differently than you are uh, a poem in a 20th century American poetry textbook, right? You're going to read, hopefully, a newspaper differently than you're going to read the Word of God because the newspaper is going to give you information, uh, the Word of God is going to impart 
uh, spiritual formation. Right. So there's there's definitely a big difference there. So we want to um, first determine the genre. Second, we want to try to grasp the context. So uh, I had us turn a few people turn to. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. So if you will jump over to 2 Corinthians 8, we're going to spend some time here. So 2 Corinthians, what is the genre? It's a letter. It's a letter, okay, so we should understand that. Letters typically, uh, particularly Paul's letters, they're written um, to provide instruction, to provide teaching, uh, sometimes to correct specific situations that were going on in the group of people the letter was written to. So 2 Corinthians, uh, we know the genre is a letter. So let's read uh, chapter 8, verse 9. I'll read that. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Nice. That's a nice verse. (laughs) Now, how might we misinterpret that Bible verse? Daddy needs a yacht. (laughs) So one might say daddy needs a yacht, or we might say uh, that God desires all of us to be rich, right? So if we rip this out of context, that would be, that would actually be a legitimate interpretation without the surrounding context. But what's the larger context? Just skim over 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and if your Bible has headings in it, uh, that could be a helpful tool for this. But what is, what is the immediate context that this verse is found in? It's an appeal to complete the collection. It's an appeal to complete the collection. Is that what your heading says in your Bible? That's exactly what yeah. <laughs> So good. So we know that uh, Paul is asking the church in Corinth through this letter to give money to those who are less fortunate. So that's part of the context, right? That's the immediate context that the verse is, is found in. So that, that's part of what Paul is saying here, right? That you give materially and you reap rewards spiritually. That's, um, that's a part of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. So that's the immediate context. That's the first thing that we want to look at is before we interpret a verse, we want to know what the verses around it are saying. So if we think of concentric circles, the immediate context, and we go one circle out to the context of the book. Does anybody know the context of the book of 2 Corinthians? And 2 Corinthians is just a sweet sweep. Like if you ever need just to be encouraged, this is a good thing just to kind of sit down and read uh, because it's all about uh, forgiveness, reconciliation, growing and being nurtured in the gospel and in the family of faith. So 2 Corinthians is just this, this sweet book of enjoying community, enjoying the fellowship of the Spirit, um, and growing in Christ's life. So that's what 2 Corinthians is, is largely about. So now knowing that, larger context, knowing the immediate context of Paul's appealing to them to collect money, give money. Uh, Now, what might be a better interpretation of uh, 2 Corinthians 8 9? Not God wants you to be rich, but God wants you to be generous. Right. Right. That's it. You know, 2 Corinthians is about the grace that we've received in Christ, which is what empowers that reconciliation. And so we're here in chapter 8, and Paul is now taking the grace that we've received, and he's instructing them to direct that outward, to be generous with it. That's it. That's perfect. So, uh, so we understand the immediate context, the context of the book, and think about what I was talking about earlier, like the grand scope, the narrative of the whole Bible, um, the, the theme of the, of the whole Bible. Where does... If the central act of the Bible, the central theme is Jesus, his birth, death, 
resurrection and what he's doing in the church until he comes again. Um, if that's the central idea of the Bible, where does this letter come in relation to that? Is this before Jesus came? No. No, so Jesus has come, right? Is he, Jesus still around? He's not. No, he's not. So he's ascended to heaven. So Paul is looking back on the cross. He's interpreting the gospel message. And then he's teaching the Corinthian church to live in light of the gospel message until Jesus returns. Does that make sense? So that's, those three things, is, uh, those are things that we can do with every of scripture that we can come to. Look at the uh, immediate context, the context of the book, and then the grand context in uh, the whole narrative of scripture. Does all that make sense? All right, so uh, we can, um, there's one other thing that I want to make sure that we, um, that we get out of this, this idea of how do we best interpret the Bible, and that is um, kind of piggybacking on what I just said, that uh, we, Christ is the theme, Jesus Christ, what he, who he was and what he did um, is the central theme of everything in the Bible. So we should be seeing Christ in some way in every passage of Scripture. Now, that, that doesn't mean that um, every passage is going to directly be talking about Jesus. Okay? When you read through the genealogies in uh, First Chronicle, like the first nine chapters of First Chronicle, there's, there's not a lot about Jesus in that. <laughs> not, it's not specifically a record of Jesus. Okay? But it does have to do with Jesus because the whole Bible does. So what we want to do is, is develop some tools um, in addition to understanding the context of the passages that we read. Uh, we want to develop some tools for understanding how the context applies to Jesus, um, predicts Jesus, or prepares us for Jesus, um, even though it may not uh, explicitly be talking about Jesus. Does that make sense? So we want to avoid the error of um, seeing Jesus under every rock, as it were, but we want to avoid the opposite error of not seeing Jesus in Old Testament passages when the entire Old Testament was written about him. Jesus even says that in Luke chapter 24 uh, and, and other places, that the whole of the scripture is about him. All right, so let's um, uh, look four ways. So if uh, you have the outline, I think there's uh, an outline, four ways that every passage points to Christ. So number one, uh, it could predict Christ. Number two, prepare for Christ. Number three, uh, could require the person or the work of Christ. And number four, could be the results of the person or work of Christ. All right, so the predictive work of Christ, uh, a passage that predicts Jesus, that's going to be the most cut and dry, right? Isaiah 7 that we talked about a little earlier. Clearly in light of the full revelation of Scripture, we know that's about Jesus. You know, uh, Psalm chapter 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, that, that clearly are, you know, words that Jesus speaks on the cross, probably with full knowledge of what he was speaking, pointing back to that psalm. So we know that that psalm is going to teach us something specifically about the life resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it predicts Christ in that way. Um, any others y'all can think of? I mean, even in the New Testament, right? Uh, John preparing the way for Christ. Okay, sure. And yeah. then or the quote from Isaiah that he's pulling from there. So that that one is pretty, uh, like I said, pretty cut and dry. Those are always fun to, to run across when you're in your Old Testament. Uh, the you know, if you do a Bible reading plan where you're like reading the Bible in a year or something like that, 
and you're reading maybe a, a book of scripture that you're not uh, super familiar with, something like Joel, you know, but then you come across Joel too, and you realize, oh, there's stuff about Jesus in there that's like specific, it's explicit. That's a lot of fun. So, uh, so just to kind of encourage you in that way, it's fun to read the Old Testament because these things will pop up a little more than you than you may realize if you've not done that before. Um, so, predicting Christ. Second uh, is probably a much broader application, and that is something that prepares for Christ. So, how might um, uh, a section of the Old Testament, rather, we're not really speaking of specific verses here, but just like uh, a section of the Old Testament or something that's going on in the Old Testament. What are some of the, the themes, the themes, maybe, in the Old Testament that are preparing for Christ? The animal sacrifices. Are okay. Preparing, and our pictures inside, and this is what we that's it. Absolutely. The sacrificial system points us to Jesus in that way. Um, so if you want some helps in this, you want to get started in this, go read the book of Hebrews. The, he- he- the book of Hebrews is basically a sermon on this topic. You know, how did the different things in the Old Testament prepare us for, as, as uh, uh, Joe said, uh, the truer and better one to come who, who fulfilled these shadows, this foreshadowing going on. So the sacrificial system, the nation of Israel, um, uh, the book of Matthew does this a lot as well. You know, you can see Jesus says over and over again, I have not come to abolish the scripture, I've come to fulfill it. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things that have been set up. Maybe one more. How about the temple? How might the temple anticipate Christ? I mean, Jesus uses the temple for a metaphor for himself, right? That he'll tear it down and build it up in three days. Mm-hmm. It's the, the housing place of God, essentially. That's it, yep, yep. The house of God, the meeting place where, where God meets man. Is, uh, was in the temple in the Old Testament. And uh, so there's a long meditation again in the book of Hebrews about how Jesus is the better and greater temple. The, the third one, again, we're kind of getting a little more amorphous as we go along. So prediction, you know, predictions about Jesus, those are kind of specifically written in the text. Um, something that might uh, prepare us or something that anticipates Jesus. Um, we kind of have to have a thematic understanding of what's occurring in the text. The third is something that requires Jesus. So now we're getting a little more theological. So what might be something um, in the Old Testament that uh, we can see requires the work of Christ? So Sam kind of hit it a little bit, talking about the nation of Israel. Um, Where might we see something in in human nature that requires the work of Jesus? Oh, that's a great one. So transgression and uncleanness. So explain what you mean by that. Right, right. So uh, the like Leviticus would be an excellent example of this. In the book of Leviticus, there's all these prescriptions for um, when you do something wrong, this is how you make yourself clean before the Lord so that you can then reenter the community of God, um, which, is a, which is a picture of why we require Jesus because we're all the time doing stuff wrong. Uh, Jesus will clarify a lot of these laws to say it's the stuff that's going on in your heart that really makes you unclean. And uh, so you have to be clean before a holy God uh, in rituals and um, all of that sort of thing is only temporary. It's not ever going to be lasting. And so Jesus comes to fulfill that. Uh, his, his blood can permanently cleanse us from sin. That's awesome. That's perfect. Somebody have any other ideas before, before we move on? So then a lot of these are Old Testament. When we get into the New Testament, uh, we're not going to be anticipating Christ as much. Obviously, Travis was talking about John the Baptist. 
Um, so there's some anticipatory um, things about Jesus there. But the majority of the, in the majority of the New Testament, Christ is either you know walking with the disciples in the in the Gospels, or he's already he's already fulfilled his mission and ascended back to heaven. And so we have a lot of uh, commentary and application about what it was that Jesus did in the letters. So uh, we're not looking forward to Christ. We're looking back to Christ just like we are now. So a lot of times that's why it's a lot easier to apply the New Testament uh, to our lives than maybe in the Old Testament because we're in a similar situation in that respect. Um, But what are some passages that might um, uh, show us the resultant work of Jesus? And and, uh, What pops into my mind is the book of Acts. Okay. Where Peter has that uh, vision of the sheep coming down. Okay. Meaning that it's not only we that have been saved, but. Absolutely. I think a lot of letters that are being written to these churches that have been formed because of mm-hmm. the word of Christ and because of their belief in Him. Right. So just the way that all of them are now living their lives and that difference from what it was before. Right. Right. So there, there are substantial differences in the way you live that result from the work of Jesus. Good. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. So, so quickly, uh, after all that, so, so we talked about uh, interpretation, understanding the context. So the immediate context, the context of the book, the context uh, of the book within the grand narrative of Scripture, uh, looking for Christ and some ways to do that. So we predict Christ. Uh, does the passage predict Christ, prepare us for Christ? Does it require the person or the work of Jesus? Uh, is this passage something that results from the person or work of Jesus? Uh, and then finally, as Nathan pointed out, um, so critical, does the passage anticipate the second coming of Christ? Um, so uh, note that we can do all of that with just this book alone. So we don't need anything uh, to add to this to understand uh, or to do all of those things that we just talked about. So even when I was giving my little spiel about 2 Corinthians, you, you could glean all of that just by reading through 2 Corinthians a few times. right? You read First and 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to all those things that I just talked about uh, in, those, in those letters. So you don't need anything outside of the text of Scripture itself to understand Scripture. You know, one of the principles of the Reformation was Scripture is the best interpreter of Scripture. Um, so we always want to keep that in mind, that the Scripture is a complete, cohesive whole, um, that it has everything that we need for godliness. Um, so that's 2 Peter 1, 3. Uh, everything that we need for godliness is uh, in the Scripture. Uh, he says that Jesus has made this, and the Holy Spirit has made this available to us by his divine power. So it's by seeing Jesus in the Scripture that we have everything that we need. So that being said, commentaries, the internet, those sorts of things can be helpful, uh, but they're not crucial, and uh, we don't want to just run to those. Um, and in fact, whenever I uh, uh, walk through the books of Bible with, with other guys, you know, Curtis will tell you, first thing that uh, we, we started going through the book of Matthew a couple months ago, the first thing that we talked about is we're just going to stay in Even if we don't understand something and it bothers us, even if we see something that may disturb us a little bit, we're just going to let that rest on our hearts and our minds, and we're going to wrestle through that and pray through that in prayer and meditation, looking at other scriptures and things like that, and see if the Holy Spirit uh, does what Jesus promised that he was going to do, which is illuminate the text onto our hearts. So it's good to wrestle with the scripture if we don't understand. 
Now, I love commentaries. I've got a bookshelf full of them. So I'm not knocking commentaries. They're great. But uh, in our own personal Bible study time interpretation, we don't want to run to commentaries. Fair enough. Nathan doesn't even use commentaries very much in preparing his sermons. Right, Nathan? So use them a little bit, but not before we wrestle and pray through the text um, ourselves. Any questions about that? All right, so let's, let's just take, we've got like five to seven minutes. Um, if anybody needs to sneak out, it's about 10.08. So if anybody needs to sneak out, you can. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Um, but while we have just a few minutes, let's practice interpretation. The passage that uh, we looked at last week with Joey was Ephesians chapter 1. So let's just turn there. If you were here last week, then uh, you've already done this, uh, some of the steps of observation with this passage, noticing repeated words, looking at the grammar, that sort of thing. So now that we've done the very critical, important step of observation, we're going to look at verses 3 through 14 and uh, try to pull some things out of interpretation. So we want to identify uh, the context. We want to see where we see Christ. And then we want to identify any gospel implications. So take about three minutes and then we'll take four or five minutes to talk about it. All right, so looking at Ephesians, uh, first first of all, what's the genre? Epistle, right? It's a letter. Okay. And uh, so what about the immediate context? So it's right at the beginning. Um, it's kind of what everything else is founded on. And um, if we back up just a couple of verses, we see that he's writing to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus. So he's Good. got confidence in this church, and we might contrast that with Galatians where he pretty much opens his letter by saying, I'm amazed you're turning away from the gospel. So he's good. He seems to be by and large happy and confident in this church. Good. Excellent. Any other thoughts there? Regarding the context you said? Yeah, the immediate context. Yep. Um, How about the book context? Does anybody have a helpful summary of the book of Ephesians if you've studied this book before? Nathan, give us a helpful summary for the book of Ephesians. <laughs> okay, yeah, sure. So understanding and meditating on our union with Christ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. One of the common words in the book is the mystery of God. So Paul is in some sense unfolding the mystery of God for the church, which is the fact that all peoples, in the specific context of Ephesians, it's Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, can be united under the banner of Christ. And uh, by extension, we know all peoples can be united uh, under the banner of Christ. And then kind of mystically or spiritually, what's happening there is, as Nathan said, we have this union with Christ. So um, do we see that? What's that? There it is. Yeah. I want to repeat that, said uh, unity with Christ, unity with each other. And I think that's a, that's a perfect summary. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot about relationships there. That's it. Um, so do we see that in these verses, 3 through 14? Are there any, um, is there any way that these verses highlight or underscore that context? Yeah, we talked about it last time, but all the in Christ, 
That's it. Versus, uh, uh, I mean, it's all one big run-on sentence. Uh, but if you look at verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. Oh, verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will. Mm-hmm. The mystery of God. Yep. That's it. It also mentions quite a few times his glory. Yep. God's glory. Yep. So what about the, the context of this book in the Bible or in the kind of the grand narrative of Scripture? It is a result of Christ and uh, it, it anticipates Christ. Yep. Yep. So we're in between Jesus' first and second coming here, right? Just like we are today. So good. Um, so we didn't really get in. I didn't get into this at all in the lesson, but using comparisons and cross-references is helpful. So if you have a Bible that has cross-references, uh, that's always a, 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 good, a good tool um, to use. You could read other translations to see uh, maybe how certain words are interpreted differently. Um, and so won't get into the different translations, but you know, generally if you pick up a Bible translation, it's fine. <laughs> you know, we don't have to worry about whether or not our English version of the Bible really gets at the heart of what the author intended when he was writing in Greek. Because the interpreters, the, the, the translators, are all experts and they've spent a lot of time on this. And there's different kinds of translations which we could get into, but we don't have time for now. But, but generally speaking, we can have confidence in the English translation of the Bible. You don't have to know Greek or Hebrew to understand and interpret the Bible. Does that make sense? They can be helpful tools. We don't have to have them. The English is fine. 99.9% of the time, it's totally fine. Nothing in the biblical message is going to be uh, misconstrued because of the English translation necessary. Okay? All right. Um, I think that's about it. Does anybody have any other thoughts about